Okay, good morning. We are live. I hope that everyone is well. Welcome to the first session of this new class, uh, summertime class with Rabbi Silver at Drisha. Uh, this class is Isaac and Rebecca partners in session. Uh, I, of course, know that many of you have been studying with Rabbi Silver for longer than I've existed, uh, but I would still like to give an introduction. Uh, Rabbi Silver is the founder and dean of Drisha Institute for Jewish Education in New York and Israel. Rabbi Silver received ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary. He's a recipient of the Covenant Award for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education and is the author of a Passover Haggadah, Go Forth and Learn, and for such a time as this, Biblical Reflections in the Book of Esther. He is also a nationally acclaimed lecturer on the Bible. So for those of us who don't know Rabbi Silver so well, now we know him a little better. Um, this class, uh, Isaac and Rebecca are the inheritors of the Covenantal Blessing. This is a five session class that will focus on Genesis 22 to 26 and engage in a series of close readings to better understand their place within the covenantal narrative. This is a Sunday class. We will not be meeting on the 4th of July because it's the 4th of July, uh, Independence Day, a holiday for those of us in the United States, but we will have one final session after that meeting. For those of you joining us on Zoom, we really appreciate when you are able to have your camera on so we can feel kind of like we're in person, um, but do keep your microphone off to minimize noise unless we are doing an open discussion, question answer session. Uh, you're welcome to follow along in your preferred chumash. Otherwise we will have the text from Safaria on screen. And um, if you're joining us on Facebook, feel free to type questions and comments in the comments section there, and I will migrate them over here. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello, good morning, thank you for being with us. So without further ado, Rabbi Silver. Thank you very much, thank you, Noah. Okay, we'll start with um, the Akeda. And again, the goal is to uh, understand how the covenantal promise uh, which is given to Abraham and uh, is uh, certified, one might say, in chapter 22, then plays out in the ensuing chapters. That's the goal. We'll see how far we get. Uh, again, I will pause from time to time to take comments or questions. Or, you, or as Noah says, you can put something in the chat and send over to Noah and we'll do my best to discuss it. Um, okay, the Yakeda, chapter 22, begins with the words, after these things. And we have the story of the binding of Isaac. And the question is, after what things? So here there's a dispute, and we touched upon this in the last set of sessions, there's a dispute between Rashi and the Rashbam, his grandson. Rashi essentially sees the core text to which the Akedah is connected to the story of Yishmael, the banishment of Yishmael, which essentially is recorded in chapter, in chapter 21. And as we pointed out at the time, I'm not gonna go over this now, uh, there's all kinds of language in the Akedah, which has resonances, parallels uh, in the story of Yishmael. 
The banishment of Yishmael starts with Vayashkem Abraham Baboker. He gets up in the morning, having been told that he must uh, remove Yishmael and, and Yishmael's mother, Hagar, from the house, which he does at God's insistence. And that's how it begins. And over here as well, uh, in verse number three, Vayashkem Abraham Baboker, after he's been given the charge by God, he obeys. And the story begins with, with exactly the same language. <coughs> So there are all kinds of parallels there. We discuss it to some extent. We'll revisit a little bit. That's how Rashi understands it. The Rashbam says that our chapter begins with the words after these things. So these things that immediately precede the Akedah is not the story of Yishmael, but rather the last many verses of chapter 21 tells us about Avimelech, the king of the Philistines, who we first meet in chapter 20. And in chapter 21, he goes out to greet Abraham and he, to make a treaty with Abraham. He wants to make a treaty with Abraham. He, of course, talks about Abraham's obligation to himself. Avimelech has never wanted to speak about his own obligations to anybody else. But he talks about Abraham's obligations to his, to his descendants. And he wants Abraham to swear and Avram does swear, but first Avram uh, informs Avimelech that his servants have stolen the water of Avraham. And Avram insists at the end of chapter 21 that the place, uh, Beersheba, is his place. That's what Avram insists on. And they swear. And Avimelech leaves. And the, and the final verses of chapter 21, it tells us after Avimelech leaves, and I'll read the last two verses of chapter 21. Abraham planted a tree in Beersheba, and he called there in the name of the eternal God, the everlasting God. And the last verse of chapter 21, So Abraham dwelt, resided in the land of the Philistines a long time. That's the story that immediately precedes chapter 22, which begins with the phrase, Achar hadvarim So the Rashbam connects it to, to the Avimel story at the end of chapter 21, and Avram planting this tree in Beersheba and calling out to the eternal God. And Avram lived in the land of the Philistines for a long time. That's the Rashbam. That's somehow connected to the Akedah. And for Rashi, he goes on a different path. The fundamental story that lies behind the Akedah for Rashi is the banishment of Yishmael in chapter 21 and the many parallels. So let me just say a couple of things. First of all, the two opinions are, the two different opinions of what perhaps what the primary story is, but there's no contradiction between the Rashbam and Rashi because one can easily make the argument that the Akedah plays off both stories. It both relates to chapter 21, the end of 21, and it obviously relates to the story of Yishmael, which has all kinds of literary connections. So there's no contradiction. It's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. It is both. And in fact, there's actually something very interesting about the Avimelech story in 21, how it begins. 
the Avimelech piece, which begins in chapter 21, verse number 22, after Yishmael has been banished and his mother finds him alive from the land of Egypt, from her homeland. Verse 22 of chapter 21 is, So the introduction of Avimelech is, at that time. Now that's an expression that doesn't appear often in the book of Breshit. I can think of only one other occasion, which comes to mind. So here it's Ba'etahi, and the phrase Ba'etahi at that time is interesting because actually Avimelech coming to Abraham presumably is not at that time, but right after that time. What motivates Avimelech to make a treaty with Abraham about the descendants, presumably, is the fact that in the previous verses, we are told that Ishmael lives in the desert, not far from Avimelech. He is a rovek kashat. He's a hunter. He's a bowman. So Avimelech, obviously, is very powerful. We know the blessing to Ishmael. He's pera adam, a wild ass of a man. Yadol bakov yad kobo. He is hand against all and all against him. That's not a fellow you want on your border who has an antagonistic attitude towards you. So presumably Avimelech desiring to make a treaty is precisely because of what we read in the verses that precede. So the Ba'etahi is interesting and Ba'etahi can be read at that very same time, which is the point I'm making now. In other words, the Akeda is connected to both stories. In a piece of writing, you can't write two things simultaneously. One is written after the other. However, the Torah makes a point that these two things happen at the same time. Even though chronologically, from a logical standpoint, that's not the case. But literarily, the point the Torah is making is what Rashi says is correct, what the Rashbam says is correct, there's no contradiction. So the Akeda, after these things, relates to both. And we will see in the reading of the Akedah the significance of that. Now, there's something else over here. Let's begin with the Akedah, chapter 22. It says, God tested Abraham. We have the word with Nasot to test. God said, Abraham. And Avram says, Hineni. Hineni means. Here I am, I am present. It's a word that appears in several places in Breshit and the beginning of Shemot, very significant word. Hineni means, even before you ask me, or tell me what to do, I am here, I'm with you. So he's gonna do what God tells him to do. And we are told, the reader is told, this is a test, Nisa Abraham. So here, let me begin by, asking a question. It's always a trick to say something new about the Akedah, I've taught it so many times, but the question is, what does it mean that God is testing Abraham? We can ask the question, why must Abraham be tested altogether? What is the purpose of a test? That's one question. And then we can ask another question, which is rarely asked as far as I can tell, which is why this test? Why this particular test? We know it's difficult. But why this particular text? And the point is, 
the answer to this question will be in the context of the Abraham story. Because the story over here, that God speaks to Abraham, God talks to Abraham, and God continues to speak. Take your son, your beloved son, your only son, Isaac, and go, take yourself to the land of Moriah, and bring him up as an Allah, as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice, on one of the uh, mountains, which I will tell you. So here we have God's speech to Abraham, and we notice immediately, of course, that the command to Abraham contains the, the words lechlecha. Now, the words lechlecha in the entire Bible only appear twice. The second time is this chapter, chapter 22, and the first time is lechlecha, parashat lechlecha, which actually is the first time God speaks to Abraham. So therefore, given the fact that we have the lechlecha, an unusual uh, two words, both addressed by God, each time commanding Avram to go someplace, and the first lechlecha is God's first communication, and the second lechlecha is God's last communication. What we take from this is that the story of the Akedah must be read as a culminating story. It's not just connected to Yishmael, it's not just connected to Avimelech, all that is true, but in addition to all that, it must be read as the culmination of all the Abraham stories, of the Abraham narrative to this point, which means, very simply, that to understand the Akedah and the purpose of the test, the Nisayon, one can only gain a good understanding from the standpoint of the study of the Torah not from the standpoint of some philosopher standing outside the text. You can say a hundred things, or the student of history, which may have a value. But our concern is what it says in the Chumash, not the history. And therefore, what it means is very simply that in order to understand the test, or the need for a test, one must ask the question, what is the Abraham narrative about? What are the primary themes of the Abraham narrative? It's about many things, but there are always primary themes. And there are two primary themes in the Abraham narrative from beginning to end. The main one is succession. Who's going to succeed Abraham? That's the burning question. Remember, we were introduced to Abraham at age 75. So he's not a youngster. We're told nothing about his youth, about his birth, about his youth, nothing. We first encounter him when he's 75. He has no heirs at that point. So the question immediately is, who will succeed? And his name is Avram, exalted father. But exalted father has no children. So who will his heir be? He's given a blessing in the beginning of chapter 12, but there's no obvious heir. The obvious one seems to be his nephew, Lot, who goes with him, who accompanies him, the son of his deceased brother, son of Haran. But that's a theme throughout the story. Is it Lot? Is it Eliezer of Damascus? Is it, is it Ishmael? God heard Abraham's prayer. For, for an heir. And Abraham named his son Yishmael, God has heard, God has accepted my prayer. Or will it be Isaac? And the Torah says, God speaks to Abraham in chapter 17 and says, it's gonna be Isaac. Covenantal son is Isaac. Yishmael, yes, will be blessed, he's your son. You'll have 12 princes and all that. Chapter 17 and again in chapter 21, 
He's going to be blessed. God said to Abraham, don't worry about him. But the covenantal son is Isaac. That's the question in the Abraham story. In Abraham, in chapter 17, when God says it's going to be Isaac, Sarah will have a child. Avram says, Would that Yishmael live before? Live. His concern is about Yishmael. So that's the one main theme. The second main theme in the Abraham story, which already is perhaps encapsulated in the, in the term Lechucha, we're talking about somebody who was told to, to go, to walk, Lechucha, in 12 and 22, in chapter 17, he's to walk, he's, to, he's directed to go to the place that God will show him in chapter 12, or the place that God will tell him in chapter 22, the search for the sacred place, the search for the special place. That's the story of Abraham. In contrast, I would say to chapter 11 of the Torah, Tower of Babel, which is about dispersion, which is movement away from a place. The story of Abraham is the attempt to discover the sacred place. And there are two sacred places. There's the land of Canaan, in which God will speak, in which God will be present, requires a certain level of behavior to stay there. And then within that place, there's another place, which is the sacred place, which is the temple, which is the Mishkan, which is the Mikdash, which is Haram Moriah in our chapter. Hashem Yireh, Hashem Hayom Hashem So the point is, the purpose of the test, why this particular test, is to address the core question of the Abraham story, namely, who shall succeed you? And here the important point is that, of course, by the time chapter 22 rolls around, there is nobody else on the scene. There's nobody else on the scene because Yishmael has been banished. Lot is some cave someplace. Who knows where Lot is? Eliezer of Damascus is a non-starter altogether. So obviously, by default, Isaac is the one and only remaining son. So obviously, Isaac is the covenantal son. And God said, take your son, your only son, Yechidcha, your only one. Ishmael is Abraham's son. He loves Ishmael. But covenantally, he's out of the picture. He's already connected to Mitzrayim. So there's only one son. So what then is the purpose of the Akedah? The purpose is that Abraham has to affirm that Isaac is the covenantal son. And Abraham will do this in the story of the Akedah by reclaiming Isaac. Yishmael is the son he will send away and will never bring back. He doesn't reclaim him. But the story of the Akedah is about reclaiming Isaac. And through Avram's behaviors, not just through his words, but through his behaviors will attest to the fact that Isaac is the covenantal child. That is the point of the test. And I would add that, and I've said this many times about tests. You know, the purpose of a test, there are different purposes, there are different kinds of tests. Uh, one test is just to find out information. I have a student. How much does the student know? Has the student mastered the material or not? So you take a test to find out. But that's one kind of test. That's not about learning, really. That's about information. It's diagnostic. The crazy thing, of course, is that education here, it's even worse in Israel. You, in Israel, they have these baguyot. It's like a test you take about the different material. 
and the entire course is structured around the Bagriyot. You have to study X because you're gonna take a test in it. Anybody who thinks for one minute about this madness, of course, the States has a similar thing. You're studying for the test. We say Moshe Kapoya, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what should be, but okay, that's one kind of test. And there's another test. A test is, could be something from which you learn. To be tried, to be tested. For example, the verse in Devarim, says that God, God made your life difficult. God made you suffer. And God starved you in the desert, says Moshe. And fed you the man, the manna, which you did not know, nor did your ancestors. Why did God do this? To inform you, to teach you. The human being does not live by bread alone, but rather through the word of God. The Torah calls that a test. The Torah speaks of that as a test in the book of Devarim. The test is to teach you. And the truth is that most of the tests we take don't teach us anything. There are some people, though, who give tests from which you actually, I won't teach you like that. I learned from his test, his test you actually learned from, because what he did was he gave you questions that you never learned. And you had to think and apply what you learned to a new situation. That was part of his test. So you had to think actually, it, was, it wasn't just remembering what you learned, it's applying it. So his tests were very interesting. I thought I learned from his tests. The test of Abraham is educational. He has to learn something, namely what he doesn't seem to understand. He doesn't seem to get fully that Isaac is his covenantal child. And not understanding that Isaac is his covenantal child is in the Chumash tied to a different problem that he has, which is he doesn't seem to understand that Sarah is his covenantal partner. He didn't understand it when he first prayed to God in chapter 15, I have no children, singular. He doesn't seem to understand it in chapter 17 when God says, but Sarah will give birth to this covenantal child and the covenant will be with Isaac. And he certainly doesn't seem to understand it in chapter 20, when after the promise has been made about Sarah, he goes to the city of Gerar and he makes a big pronouncement, she is my sister. And after the fact, after Abimelech grabs her inappropriately, why did you lie to me? And Abraham answers, she really is my sister. She's fundamentally, I took her as a wife, but she's basically my sister, which suggests to us very strongly that at least by the through chapter 20, he hasn't fully grasped the truth about Isaac because he hasn't fully grasped the truth about Sarah. So the purpose then of the Akedah, why this particular test, is to teach Abraham through what Abraham will do and not just what he will say, that in fact, Isaac is the covenantal child by allowing Abraham to reclaim Isaac, to redeem Isaac, by replacing Abraham, uh, Isaac with a, with, a, with a sacrifice, which will be instead of his son, Tachat Benel. That's the, in my, that's how I understand the test.
To me, it's obvious. I must confess, it's obvious. And the amount of unbelievable nonsense that's been said and written about the Akeita, I find mind boggling actually. But the simple shot of the Chumash is this. This is the point of the test. Now, the way it's set up is very interesting. And we're going to proceed with this now. But after these things then, is not limited only to Yishmael and to Avimelech. I'll get back to Avimelech a little later. But also after all these things, because of the Lechuchas, and not just the word Lechucha. Let me make a different methodological point. When you find connections like Lechucha, the first and the last communication, you can bet your bottom dollar that there are many other connections as well. It's never just one. When you find one, there are five. When you find five, there are 10. Some are more significant than others. Some we call literary effects, but they are there to strengthen the connection. For example, just give one example. There'll be others. When Avram first is summoned Lechucha to go in chapter 12, go to the place that I will show you and Avram travels south. And the first place he comes to, in verse number seven of chapter 12, by Yavar, Ram Baaretz, Ad Mekom Shechem, Ad Elon Moreh. So the first place where Abraham enters the land is in Shechem. That's not surprising. But it's also, Shechem has another name, Elon Moreh. So the first place he goes to in chapter 12, the first Lechacha is Elon Moreh. The second, in the second Lechucha, which is our chapter, uh, it's not Elon Moreh, but rather Eretz HaMoriah. Not the same place, but there's a literary link between those two words, Elon Moreh on one end and Eretz HaMoriah on the other. Just an example. And the point of it is that the Torah wants us to read chapter 12 in the light of not just chapter 22, not only in the light of chapter 12, but in the light of the whole story, because chapter 12 is the beginning of God's communications with Abraham. Actually, we meet Abraham even in chapter 11, but in chapter 12, it's the first communication. Chapter 22 is the last communication. Okay, so I wanna begin with that thought and let us now proceed. I'll stop every so often and take comments or questions, but let me just continue a bit. So God is testing Abraham. It may be the case that in it says that Abraham was tested 10 times, but the word Nisa appears only once. It appears uh, here in chapter 22. The idea that he's being tested many times perhaps supports what I just suggested. Namely, when you read this Nisayon, the Akedah, you have to read it in light of all the previous stories. It's a culmination of all the previous stories. Okay. Now the command is in chapter two. Abraham has already said hineni. Hineni means, yes, whatever you say I'm gonna do, that's hineni. It's a word that the Torah picks up in several other places. Leave that for now. But the command is, So the command is clear, uh, bring him up as a sacrifice, as an Allah as a burnt offering, bring him up as an offering, uh, sacrifice your son. Let me just say in the beginning, the Akeda raises obviously many, many questions, but 
we have to distinguish between bringing him up as a sacrifice and killing. Now, bringing him up as a sacrifice when Teh was being slaughtered, as the Torah says later, he took up the knife to slaughter his son, who was shot at Beno. But we have to distinguish between God saying kill X on one hand and God saying sacrifice X on the other. From our perspective, or from some of our perspectives, that may be the same thing. But from the Torah's perspective, it's not. It's not the same thing. Bring him up as a sacrifice to God is not the same for the Chumash as kill him. And in point of fact, what is very striking is that there doesn't seem to be in the Chumash, as far as I could tell, any intimation that there's something problematic about this. I'm not saying we are in trouble by it. We and many others are troubled by this. But what's funny is that the Chumash doesn't seem to be terribly troubled by that problem. God has the right, it would appear, to demand the sacrifice. And especially in this case, because remember that the birth of Isaac is supernatural to begin with. One might say that the Chumash sees God as the father, as we pointed out in our study. So there's something about God demanding back God's own child. The ones who understood this very well, of course, were the Christians who built their story, to some extent, playing off the Akedah. The crucifixion and the Akedah have much in common. But there's something about the birth of Isaac, which is basically supernatural. It can't happen normally. So in this case, beyond the fact that every human being's life, one might say our soul belongs to God, God or God is, controls all, or belongs to God. But in this particular case, even more so, because the very birth of Yitzchak is presented as supernatural. Uh, yes, I'll take some comments or questions now. Yes, Elliot, you want to speak? Yes? Are there any comments or questions now? Otherwise, just continue. Yes. I just wanted to say, you know, somebody with uh, first language is Hebrew, that unlike English, where the word test has two, the two meanings that you mentioned, like a test in school, let's say, uh, when the teacher tests you, and the test of uh, Avram. So in Hebrew, you don't have this, uh, because in, in school, you never have a test, you have uh, examination. Maybe in the laboratory, but not. So um, I'm just saying uh, that it's interesting to me to, to, to see, because I tried to think in Hebrew while you were explaining it in English, and it doesn't match. So on the other hand, the, the word in Hebrew has the meaning also of experience. Yes, Linisayon Ashir. So you say we, we can learn from a test. When you said we can learn from a test, so maybe it has to do with this experience that you enrich your experience when you have an Isayon. So. But we have to remember there's, there is there's modern Hebrew and there's biblical Hebrew. And uh, maybe I'm not sure today, but I wanted to examine where the word Nisayon appears in the, in the, uh, in the uh, Torah. And there it's actually very interesting and I think it supports what I'm suggesting. But I'll leave that for now. But yes, in modern Hebrew, uh, Nisayon does mean experience, that is true. 
among my experience, but the question is where in the in the Chumash, where it where it comes to play. Can I add something? Go ahead. Um, maybe I should wait with this, but uh, I'm afraid I will forget. Um, you mentioned that it's also an Isayon about a place, which I'm sure we will uh, go late into this later. But it makes sense because the previous one, like, I don't know why, why I need the Torah to tell me this. What shall I do with this? I mean, what I'll tell does you it why. Mean? Since you raised it, I'll tell you very, i tell you exactly why. I was going to deal with that later. I'll mention something now. That actually, the two themes of discovering the place and figuring out how, um, how succession works are related to each other. The Rashbam, who connects it 22 to 21, has his own particular take on it. He sees the Akedah as a punishment because uh, Abraham has made a treaty with the Philistines and the Rashbam says the land of the Philistines is part of the land of Canaan, so claims the Rashbam. And therefore he wasn't allowed to make a treaty with Avimelech, he shouldn't have done that. As the Torah says later in Shemot, Lo lahem brit. don't make a covenant with them. And he made a covenant. So the Rashbam argues that you think you're going to secure the future with the treaty, maybe you have no future. That's how the Rashbam takes it. Personally, I don't like that interpretation. I think the Rashbam is certainly correct that it's connected to the previous story, but his explanation as to how I find problematic. But let me say the connection, and I'll come back to this later, but one connection I would make straight out, which is what the Chumash has emphasized at the end of chapter 21, he plants a tree. He calls out to God, to the eternal God. One gets the sense that Avram thinks that he has finally, after all his wanderings, has found the place. He has his place, Beersheba. He made a deal about Beersheba, it's his place. Uh, he plants a tree, which is something that's there for a long time. He calls out to God which he did earlier in chapter 12 and chapter 13 on two occasions, but here it's El Olam, to the eternal God. And he lives there, Yomim Rabim. And one gets the sense, after all the wanderings, the peripatetic Abraham has found his place. After these things, God said to Abraham, leave, leave the place, because the place, the sacred place, is not the place that you choose. A human being does not choose the sacred place in the Bible. The sacred place is always chosen by God. In fact, in the Chumash, which doesn't tell us where God's place is, it says something else. It's always the place that God chooses. That's a central theme of the Torah. It's a central theme of the book of Shmuel. And that's one of the connections to the end, to the end of chapter 21. You leave the place because you don't determine where it is. Only God will determine where it is. That's one connection. Now there's another connection, which we'll get to later on, which is very important for the Akedah. But okay, so let me stop at this point and I'll continue. Someone else has a question? I'll take it now. Otherwise we will. Anybody have a question? Speak up. I have a comment to continue Sarah's uh, point. In Hebrew also, nisui. Nisui is an experiment. So right. this word. That's right. can be seen as an experiment. 
That's true. That's true. In modern Hebrew, nisot or nisayon means experience, actually. Yeah. Experience, experiment. That's true. But the question is, to experience something, yes. Um, but there are different kinds of experiences. The point of the Chumash, I think, in more than one place, is it's an experience from which you learn. And we, I can demonstrate that, but not right now. And that, that's an important point. There was one other question there. Yael, was that you? Uh, Dorothy has her hand up if she'd like Dorothy, to. Dorothy, whoever it is, go ahead. So, yeah, go ahead, speak. Yes? Dorothy, do you need help unmuting? While, while Dorothy is unmuting, a har hamoria and elon more, it's hora, it's a place of teaching. Yes, could be so, a place of teaching or, 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 or direction, because the mora derech is one who gives direction. Torah, that's what the word Torah is. Torah gives us a sense of direction. A derech it's the path that we are to take. There's specific rules and there's a general path that, uh, yeah, to, to teach is the Horot, of course. That's a good point. Okay, well, I'm going to continue. If someone has put it in the chat, and I'll, I'll try to uh, to respond. Okay, so fine. So here, like chapter 21, Avram has been commanded. By the way, something else about verse number two. That has a certain meter to it. And it recalls again chapter 12. God said, It's the same kind of rhythm to it. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's interesting, apart from the rhythm, it's very interesting what Rashi cites of Medrash. Medrash says that God said to Abraham, take your son in the Medrash, not in the text. The Medrash says, I have two sons. No, take the one, take your only son, your only son, Yechitcha. Says Abraham, each one is an only son. He's the only son to Sarah, and Yishmael is the only son of uh, of uh, of uh, Hagar. Each one is an only child, the one you love. I love them both. Take Isaac, and that medrash actually can be read as exactly the point that I'm making. That even though Yishmael is, of course, he's been banished, Yishmael, but from a psychological standpoint, says the medrash, he, Abraham still is not doesn't understand that from the covenantal standpoint, there is only one. You can love them all, but there's one covenantal child. So that the Medrash probably is picking that up. Anyway, let's continue. Now we have verse number three, as in chapter 21, he gets up early in the morning. He's gonna do what God commands him to do. Saddles his ass. Takes his two Yuads with him and Yitzchak his son. He hews the wood for the burnt offering. And he gets up and walks, I would say, towards the place of which God has spoken. So let's just reflect upon verse number three for a moment. There's a lot to say about verse number three gets up early in the morning, and he takes with him two narim. He takes with him two, two young men. 
and his son, they called Narav, in contrast in this verse to his son Yitzchak. He hews the wood, he gets up and he walks towards the place. And now the question is, uh, what is the function of the two, of the two Narim? Why do we need the two Narim for the, for the story? We could have had exactly the same story minus these two lads. What is their purpose? One might say, what is the literary function of these two young men? Give Abraham an opportunity to speak up in That's our one. ears. There were, two, there were two reasons in my view. The first is what Sarah says, namely, it's an opportunity for Abraham to speak. Abraham in the Akedah speaks twice. And what he says is very interesting. So what he says to the two Narim, he says to them, you stay here with the Hamar. My eye in the way, Aniva Anar Melchadko, we're going to go there. We're going to bow down and we're going to come back. So he says to the Narim, we're going to return. Now he knows what he's been commanded to do. So what does it mean we're going to return? And if the and if the if you answer the question by saying, well, what's he going to say to the two lads? I'm going to go up and slaughter this, this child and come back to you. Of course, but that's ridiculous because the Torah could have eliminated the two Narim altogether. What, mean, what, what was he going to say to them? Say nothing to them and take them out of the story. They're there precisely to have him say this to him. So the question when he says this, the question is, what is he thinking when he says it? Is it simply, yeah, we'll, we'll be back? Or does he actually on some level think of the possibility that in fact, they will return? That's one point. And the second point clearly is, and one that the Midrashim pick up on, is that when he speaks to the two Narim, he says to them uh, in verse number, Verse number five, you stay here with the Hamar, right? And me and the Nar will go ko, bow down and return. Here, the verse contrasts two little words, po and ko. Hmm. You stay po. You stay over here, but me and the, this lad will go there. The Medrash picks this up. The Medrash says, who are the two boys that, who are the two young men that are going with him? So according to one Medrash, one of them is uh, Eliezer of Damascus and one is Ishmael. Now, don't take it literally, but the point is the contrast. You stay po and I'm going ko. And that Medrash is picking up on something else actually, which is if we recall the covenantal promise Abraham said to God, I have no successor, I have no heirs. And God took Abraham outside. Look at the heavens, number the stars. Can you count them? And God said to Abraham, Thus will your descendants be. Your descendants will be ko. So of course, the text, the Torah picks up on the ko. Me and, me and this boy are going ko it recalls for us the covenantal promise and actually heightens the drama because the covenantal promise has been made concerning Abraham's son, his only son in God's words, 
But if Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, how will the covenantal promise ever happen? So therefore, it gives credence to the idea that somehow Abraham believes, though it's contradictory, it's absurd, that's true, that me and the lad will in fact come down. We're gonna to return to you somehow. I'm not saying he knows it for a fact. He holds two truths simultaneously, that Isaac is the covenantal child, and that Isaac must be sacrificed. He doesn't know how to resolve that contradiction, but the contradiction is a contradiction within God's own words. It's actually another problem in the story is, there's a contradiction in terms of what God has said, because God has said both things. God has said explicitly more than once, through Isaac will, your, will the covenant be realized, and it's Isaac, and God also says, bring him up as a sacrifice. So Abraham holds these two truths simultaneously. You're mutually exclusive, but that's part of the story. And it's heightened by the two Narim, the statement to the two Narim, the specialness of Isaac, who's separate from them, who's co, they're only po with the Hamar. He's co. And at the same time, it also allows Abraham to say, we're gonna return, but we, we the reader are puzzled by this. How is this possible? That's a good question. In any event, that's the two Narim. Now, now there's another question. Now there's another question here, which is Abraham was commanded to go, right? Lech lecha, lech lecha, um, and to take his son. We'd say the two key words of the command are kach and lech. And in, in addition to that, halehu, bring him up as a sacrifice. Halehu we go up. Abraham gets up early in the morning. And it's interesting, we are told, vayivaka atse Allah. He hews the wood for the Allah. Why does Abraham, first of all, why does the Chumash tell us vayivaka atse Allah? And actually, when you think about it, it's very puzzling because he's going on a journey. The Torah says he journeys for three days. Why would you hew the wood here? Why not wait till you get to the place of which God will tell you and hew the wood there? Why schlep the wood? What is the point of schlepping the wood? You know, the, the answer is not, and don't even think it. He's not sure he's gonna find wood. Please don't say that because that would be idiotic. So don't say something like that. Don't even think it. Because that's not even the question. The question is, why is the Chumash mentioned altogether? What is Vayivaka Atzei Olah? What is the literary significance Vayivaka Atzei Olah? And I believe, I'll make a suggestion, that the command was, and this is very important for later, the command was Kach and Leich and Haleu Liolah. Abraham gets up early in the morning. He's kach. And he goes. He's fulfilling God, what God said to do. But what about He can't do that yet because he's got to wait to the place of which God tells him. But it's a way to demonstrate that Abraham has every intention of doing what God tells him to do. And in fact, he does it immediately. He's kach, he's lech, and even in terms of the Allah, he already, that's part of Vayashkem Avram Baboker. And this is a very important point, because later in the story, as we know, I'm not giving anything away, 
Abraham will not sacrifice Isaac. He will sacrifice a ram instead of Isaac. And that sacrifice of the ram, which we'll get to, if not this week, next week, which is very central to the story, the Torah describes it this way, that after the angel calls out to Avram from heaven and says, don't do it, you passed the test, don't do it. In verse number 13, he lifted up his eyes, Avram lifts up his eyes and he sees Ayo, he sees a ram. Achar was translated afterwards, Nechaz basvach bekarnav, entangled in the brush. And then the second half of verse 13, Vayelech Avraham, Vayikach et ha'ayo, Vayalehu liyola tachat beno. Vayelech, Vayikach, Vayalehu. It's a perfect, and I mean perfect fulfillment of what God told them to do. It's a perfect mirror of God's words. Kach, Lech, Halehu. And in point of fact, what the Torah wants to say in our verse, and the Avram getting up is, there too there's a perfect fulfillment. Vayikach, vayokom vayelech, vayivaka atzeola. You can't bring the sacrifice here, vayivaka atzeola. And therefore, the way the Torah describes it, we may have a hundred problems with the Akedah. Totally legitimate. And we'll deal with, we have to deal with our problems. But the fact is, what does the text say? And the text, in describing what Abraham does, I would say two simple English words. Perfect fulfillment. There's no other way to read it. It may bother us. Okay. It's part of learning. It bothers us. But what does the Torah actually say? The Torah is saying it's a perfect fulfillment. Because what he does is a perfect mirror of what, what God told him to do. Apart from the fact that the Torah gives a reason for the Akedah, explicit reason. I now know that you are a God-fearing person. We'll come back to that later, if not today. But there's no other way. You know, I'm someone who sees many ways to read things. But in the Akedah, there's only one way to read it in terms of the fulfillment. It is a perfect, and I mean perfect fulfillment, because the language is exactly reflective of God's command. ABC, and Abraham does ABC in the beginning, and at the end of it, with the ayo, perfect. So therefore, we're talking about a perfect fulfillment of what God uh, demands of Abraham. We understand why many people are bothered by it, and they invent all kinds of things about the Akedah. But in terms of the text, which is our responsibility, first, what does it actually say? That stuff has no place. It is obvious. Anyway, fine. Now let us continue. Now we'll continue. Uh, what time is it now? I don't have a watch. It is 10 of, so we have 25 minutes. 25 minutes, good. Okay, fine. Now, now we have something else in verse number three. Before we abandon verse number three, there's something else here. And that is another word that is one of the critical words of the Akedah. And it's found um, in verse number three. Vayokom vayelech el hamakom asher The word is hamakom. Doesn't say makom. It says hamakom with the hey, the place. The point of the Akedah then is is to discover hamakom, the place, the place that God of which God will speak. 
I mentioned earlier about the place that God chooses, which the Torah calls in the book of Dvarim, Hamakoma Sheyivchar Hashem, Ushaken Shemo Sham. It's there, it's Sham. Ushaken Shemo Sham. Sometimes the Chumash says, Rosum et Shemo Sham. Hamakoma Sheyivchar Hashem, playing on the Shin Mem, Rosum et Shemo Sham. And of course, in this Keda story, we'll have the word Sham, we'll have the word uh, shame. And we'll have the word sham. Sham, shame, and sam are all in the Akeda. Hamakom, the place. It's a very important point for other reasons that we'll get to, not necessarily this week or next, but it's critical. So hamakom, go to the place. Fine. Now there's something else over here I forgot to mention, and that is the following. We notice, of course, the parallel to chapter 12. There are many parallels to chapter 12, the two lechuchas, the two sacrifices, the moriyan elon moreh. And uh, it's also when you have parallels, of course you notice differences. The differences are only there when you have the parallels. You can't con contrast two, ra two, two radically different things. You contrast two things that are similar. So the similarities of 12 and 22 allow us to notice and hopefully to interpret some of the differences. And here's one of the differences, that in chapter 12, when God first speaks to Abraham, uh, it says, Lechucha, leave your land, your homeland, your father's house, and go, in verse number one, El HaMakom Asher Areka, go to the place that I will show you. There you have, um, I'm sorry, there it's El, not Makom, there it's El Ha'aretz Asher Areka. But the point is that in verse number one of chapter 12, it's the place that I will show you, Asher Areka. But in our chapter, it doesn't talk about the place that God shows him, but rather the place of which I will speak, Hamakom Asher Omare Recha. And what's interesting about this, namely, that it doesn't say the place that I will show you, but rather that I will tell you, I will speak of, is that the Akedah, this little story, has not abandoned the verb to see, quite the opposite. The verb to see is a central verb of chapter 22. But the seer, the one who sees in chapter 22, is not one who's shown anything, the one who sees by himself. For example, in the next verse, in chapter 22, verse number four, on the third day, Abraham lifts up his eyes, and once again, he sees the place, but he sees it from a distance. We discussed in the previous set of sessions the contrast between Hagar standing rachok, because she doesn't want to see. And the Abraham in chapter 22 who sees from a distance, who lifts up his eyes with Hagar, it's God opened her eyes. And here in chapter 22, we have it again in verse number 13, <coughs> after he's been told not to sacrifice Yitzchak, 
he lifts up his eyes again, and he sees. <coughs> he sees an ayo. He sees the ayo entangled in the brush, and he goes and he brings the sacrifice. So the point is that the focus of chapter 22, the Akeda, is very much about seeing, but the focus is on Abraham's seeing. And in fact, the very place that Abraham will bring the sacrifice, Abraham will name the place. Shema Malkom, he gives the place a name, right? God said in the beginning, Haleyu Shom, go Shom, go there. And Abraham names the place, gives it a shame. And what is the name that Abraham gives it? The place that God will see. Which today is known as the place in which God is seen. So the idea of seeing is central to chapter 22. But the one who sees actually is Abraham. Avram sees, he names the place, the place which God sees, and also the place in which God can be seen, we are told. We'll come back to the idea of, of vision of sight again later in our study, but the contrast to chapter 12 is very obvious. One might say, to explain the difference between chapter 12 and 22, in chapter 12, Abraham has to be shown. In the beginning of the Abraham story, he has to be shown. But in chapter 22, God doesn't have to show him anything. He's perfectly capable of being, of seeing himself without being shown, which raises a different question for us, which emerges from the study of the previous chapters. And it's a very simple question. How could it be that the same person, Avram, who in chapter 20 talks about wandering aimlessly from one place to the next. Ever since we wandered aimlessly, God caused me to wander aimlessly. Who in chapter 20 can, can insist, Avimelch, Shmuley is my sister. And why do you do this? We do it every place we go. All is terutzim. And in chapter 22, he sees perfectly how can we account for the difference between chapter 20 and chapter 22. What happened in between chapter 20 and chapter 22 that allows Avram to see perfectly? Well, what happens in between chapter 20 and 22, the main thing that happens is, and that's what Rashi was picking up on, Yishmael. The banishment of Yishmael is what allows Avram to see perfectly. Because once Yishmael is out of the picture, there is only one possibility. Yes, he still must affirm it. He must fully understand it. But as long as Yishmael is around, Avram can't see. He's only able to see once Yishmael is not in his sight, he's out of the picture. So Yishmael has to be banished, actually. Now, one can see it as a kind of tragedy, and it has tragic elements to it. Maybe it should never have gotten to that point. And you can point the finger at everybody. You can blame Sarah, you can blame Hagar, you can blame Yishmael, you can blame Abraham, and it's all true. They're all responsible. But at the end of the day, you have a situation you have to deal with. And to go back and study history, how did this happen, is not the point. You deal with the reality that you have today. And that reality has to be dealt with, whose ever fault it may be. Everybody has a different narrative about that. 
but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, you got a problem you got to deal with. And Yishmael has to be out of the picture because otherwise Abraham won't see. But once he is out of the picture, he's able to see very, very clearly, which is one of the themes of the Akedah, his ability to see perfectly. And, we'll, 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 and we will understand it better as we proceed through the Akedah. Let me stop here for a moment. We have about 15 or so minutes. If anybody has any questions now or comments, please speak up. Rabbi Silver, I think you said the Nearim have two functions and you mentioned just one. No, I mentioned two. Okay. One you mentioned when I asked. Two, two functions. One is it allows them to speak. Yes. It allows yeah. them to say something, which is we're going to return. It allows them to make the statement that we are going to make it back. We're going to return. It's somehow going to be okay. Don't ask me how. It's going to be okay. That's one function. Yes. The second function is to contrast the two who stay behind with the one who goes forward, to contrast the po with the co. Oh. Uh, uh -huh. you, you stay po. Uh -huh. and uh -huh. me, and the, me and this boy are going co, and my point is that the co recalls for the reader the very terms of the promise, ko yezarecha, which of course uh -huh. heightens the problem. Since we know there's a covenantal promise about Yitzchak explicitly in chapter 17, and it's the fulfillment of what it says in chapter 15, so what's going to happen over here? It's a question about God. God makes two contradictory statements. How are we going to resolve the contradiction in God? That's a problem in the text. It's a problem in the Midrash. The Midrash has its solutions, but we're interested more in the solution of the plain pshat of the Chumash, because the Chumash has a solution too, in pshat. The Midrash embellish, enhance, but the Chumash will resolve this problem, which is a problem. God has said two contradictory things. We'll, all, will, all will be resolved. I can't say all will be resolved, but many things will be resolved as we go through the story. The reason I ask you um, is I always have the feeling that it's not by chance the story starts with the Narim and it ends with the Narim. That is also true. Frame. Yes, we will get to that. You're 100% right about that. There's something else happening in the Pesukim here with the Na'arim. If you look at uh, if you look at Pasuk Gimel when he's starting out, it's very specific. And then when he's talking between the three that he's going to take one aside, he refers to them all very specifically as Na'arim. So you're seeing in the language Avram is sort of in the middle between making the distinction between one is a Ben and the other is Na'arim and still thinking of them all sort of in the same category. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure about that actually. You, you, you make a good point that when he talks to the Na'arim, he says, I need It's like he doesn't want to hurt them, their feelings by saying, I don't you know, but he, he refers to them all the same. And I think it, it's, it's, it kind of pinpoints what, points to what you're saying. Well, maybe the point is that perhaps it has something else. He's saying, you two Narim stay here, and the other Nar is going there, and he'll come back to where you are. So maybe it, it underscores the fact that the same way you're here, together with the Hamar, we're going to return to you, as if to say, we're going, we're going, to, we're going to go back, go there and maybe worship or whatever, come back. And the same way you're here, your two Narim are here, this fellow, or we could say that he actually intends to conceal from them the truth. In other words, he's not going to get into the details of this. We're going to worship Aniva Anar, but 
your point is well taken. Right, that but it also, true. when you juxtapose it against other pasuk, which specifically separates them. That's right. That's meaningful, I think. Right, that is true. And especially since the first pasuk is not Avram talking. Yes. It's the Chumash talking. Yes. When Avram talks, he, put, he speaks about the Nar. That's yeah. a good point. I have to think more about that. Okay. Yeah, I, always speak. I just wanted to add something. Yeah. Okay. I'm I, next. I wanted to come. <laughs> I'm after that. <laughs> Go ahead. Speak. Okay. Okay. Uh, I wanted to add that to me, the aisle is of great significance because it is only You're after it is only after Avram sees the aisle that he knows truly that the second message has outdone the first message because the aisle is a miraculous occurrence and it's the only type of occurrence or the only type of sacrifice that could be a tamur, a, a juxtaposition for the sun, which is also a miraculous occurrence. Okay, let me, let me, let me stop you at this point. I'll get, I, I will, I, first of all, I completely agree with you. The sacrifice is the key to the story. The question is, what is the climax of the story? And I, of the opinion that the aisle is the resolution of the story, actually. The aisle is, one might say, both not Isaac and also yes, Isaac, which is the idea of sacrifice. I will get to the aisle later on. I will simply point out, maybe you had this in mind, that when, 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 when Yitzchak asked his father, father, I see the fire and I see the wood, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham answers and says, Elohim Yerelo Haseh God will provide the lamb. Now a lamb, okay, a set, is a small, relatively small animal. You can pick up a lamb or you can certainly direct it by hand. An aisle, a ram, is not. So the point is, Abraham had said, whatever he's saying, he's saying, well, God will provide the set. But at the end of the day, it's not a set, it's an aisle. But how could it be an aisle? You can't catch an aisle. And of course, the answer is, nechaz basvach bikarnav, entangled ah, in the yeah. brush. Yeah. Yeah. He understands that actually the aisle is, it's not just an accident, it's not a coincidence. He understands that the aisle actually is, it's, a, it's actually a setup. He understands that the aisle, one might say, that God's initial intention was to bring a sacrifice in lieu of Isaac, but of course the idea of a carbon in general in the Torah, maybe the Bible in general is the sacrifice is actually me. I will, I will get to that later on. So the sacrifice is critical to the story. There's no question about it. There's something about your formulation that I think I will disagree with later, but let's leave it for now and I'll get to it uh, next week. Who else? <laughs> Joanna, something to say here? Maybe, yes. Yes. Yeah, well, yes. I'm going to mute everyone and unmute people in order so we don't get so okay, much of that fine. feedback. Ahead, so uh, Yale was next in line. So Yale. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. The uh, pasuk in the second verse. Right. No. 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 Asher Omar Elecha. Asher Omar Elecha. Chapter twelve. Right, so the question God is... God never said anything. He saw the place. No, it says... How did he know it was the place? It says, Where's that passage? In verse number... Ah, eight. okay. He went to the place which God had, had told him. 
We're told in verse number three, the place which God had told them. We don't have, you're right, it doesn't say by Yom Hashem al this is the place. Yeah. What it sounds like is he's told to go in sort of the general direction. There's maybe a range of mountains, a certain area. And within that area, he's to pick out a particular place, which will be a mountain. He goes to the, he looks up and he sees the distance uh, from, from a distance. But we are told that God told him in verse number three. Asher Amar Elohim, yes. Okay. Okay. I missed Next. that, sorry. Next was Jean. Yes, speak. You said Jean or Joanne? Joanne, Joanne, go ahead. Okay, also known as Yochebet. Um, I just was picking up on the contrast between um, the two of you stay here with a Chamor and ending up with an Ayel. Um, and the wild ass of a man that uh, Ishmael uh, yeah. is described and uh, the fact that we're leaving this, um, this side of the family aside and the unclean animal that couldn't be used as a sacrifice. And then at the top of the mountain, we find a kosher animal. Uh, a clean animal is uh, described. Well, as, you, as you're talking, Joanne, I gotta tell you something. First of all, there's always something, whenever I've taught the Akeda many times, it's always something new. What's interesting actually is a, an entirely interesting idea about the Akeda, which I have to think it through, but it is very striking that the Chamor is an example, is a classic example of a, of a non-kosher animal, right? It's the kosher animals, could be an A's, an Ayo, the, the sacrificial animals, Akvasim, Elim, Parim, okay? Seh, right? Seizim. And when it comes to the firstborn, actually, what does the Torah say? Petechamar Tifnebeseh, actually, it's very striking that you redeem the Chamar, right? The firstborn of the Chamar is redeemed through the sacrifice of the Seh. So you got to wonder over here about this, the, as to come back to Herb's point, the sacrifice, in my view, and that's what Herb is getting at, I think, as well, the sacrifice is essential to the story. It's going to be the place of sacrifice. It's, it's the place that God sees and is seen. It's also the place of service. And there's something about the story, even the lead into the story in the end of 21, where he sets aside seven kvasim. Shiva kvasim is a typical sacrificial group of animals in the Torah. So you have the kvasim, you have the chamo, which is not, you have the say, you have the ayo. There's something here about the story. It, me, all this perhaps is to underscore and to reinforce the sacrificial nature of the story and to put the sacrifice at the center because the sacrifice is the resolution of the deepest problem of the story. God has said two contradictory things. How can it be that you both sacrifice Isaac on one hand and that Isaac is the covenantal child on the other, to which the answer of the Chumash in the Pshad, I think, is Tachat Beno, the sacrifice is on one hand Isaac, but it's not Isaac. It's the closest thing to the person. The idea of sacrifice is the idea of substitution. And that's what's central to the Akedah. And I'll simply add another example where the sacrifice is an act of substitution, which is the other great sacrifice of the biblical narrative. The first is the binding of Isaac. And the second great sacrifice of the biblical narrative, of course, obviously, is the carbon Pesach. And the carbon Pesach is exactly that, because God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. 
and I will sway the Egyptians. But you, you will be safe. Why will you be safe? Because I will see the blood on the doorpost and I won't allow the, the angel, the mashchit, the destroying angel to enter the house. So what does that mean? I won't allow the destroying angel to enter the house. One could interpret it in the following way. When it comes to the others who have no sacrifice, who have no proxy, I take their lives. But as far as you are concerned, if you place the blood on the doorpost, that is to say, if you bring the sacrificial animal, I accept the sacrifice in lieu of the child. The sacrifice is in place of. The sacrifice is an act of substitution. Instead of taking you, I take a sacrifice. And that is here the point of the Akedah, I believe, as well. That the sacrifice is in lieu of Isaac, because the sacrifice is you. The sacrifice is Isaac. The one who understood this, I think, very well is the Ramban. In the Ramban's introduction to like, doesn't talk about the Akedah. But he talks about the idea of sacrifice as an act of substitution. And I think it's true in the two great narratives of the sacrificial narratives of the Bible. The four, first, obviously, is the Akedah. The second is Karban Pesach. And it's the same in both instances. The Karban Pesach is an act of substitution. Um, Robert, yes. Robert, uh, I have a trouble with the word Achar. Uh, why is that necessary? Yes, uh, it's a very good question. Razzle, let me, let's wait till we get to it. Uh, I have something to say about it, which is speculative. But yes, the word achar, let me say the following, that the word achar, which probably does mean afterwards, um, but the word achar is one of those little words that has figured prominently in the Abraham narrative. So we get to it, we'll take a look at the Abraham narrative, and we will see how the word achar very strikingly figures in the Abraham story. Let's just wait. I have it, I have it in mind. Let's wait till we get there. Yes, Jean? You're muted. Speak up. You're muted. Uh, sorry. Uh, Rabbi, uh, were you asking me to ask my question? What's the question? You go ahead. Uh, yes. Oh, uh, okay. Is that? Should I repeat my question? Yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the word is always vayar in singular. Lashon yachid. It's only Avraham who has the clarity of vision. Not the Na'arim, Not Yitzchak. Nobody else. It's only Avraham, which of course reinforces your idea that this is all about clarity of Avraham being able to learn that Yitzchak is the covenantal son. That's for sure, 100%, right? And you know, it's funny, we call the story Akedat Yitzchak, but it's about Abraham. That's right. The of the That's story right. is Avraham. Yitzchak is, in the shot of it, he is a passive right. a questioner. The, the Midrashim, of course, take it from, from many different, maybe we'll talk about that, next time, hope we get there. He has a hundred different pieces to the Akeda, but in the, some of the Midrashim, he's a full partner. But in the Pshat of the Chumash, it sounds like he's a questioner. He doesn't know exactly what's gonna happen, he's passive. And right. I think that Yitzchak is essentially about Abraham. Okay, I, have a, right. I can take one or two more questions, we'll have to stop, we'll continue next week. I have a question or a comment at any rate. Go ahead. Um, the, uh, the difference between the carbon Pesach and what happened here 
Karen Pesach, we already know well before we do anything. This is a it's a substitute. That's clear to everyone. I think Abraham didn't figure that out until it was the Torah tells us his hand was up. And at the time your hand is up, you've already made the commitment. It's not like just before he raises his shove when you reconsider. When his hand is up there to do it, he's already committed, he's gonna do it. So he made the sacrifice in his Neshama, and then Hashem saved him from that. But I would say the following though. I, uh, you may be right that it's obvious to everybody that the idea of the Karman Pesach is a substitution, but I have grave doubts whether that's the case. I think most people think of the Karman Pesach as there's blood on the door and the angel of death will know not to enter that door because they've done the mitzvah of bringing the carbon Pesach, but not that the carbon Pesach is in fact my substitute. So I would, I, I would severely doubt that most people see, see the carbon Pesach as an active substitution. They see it more as a sign, as a signal, as the performance of a good deed, but that the carbon Pesach is in fact me in my stead. I doubt severely that most people see it that way, but now we all see it that way, right? What else? What else? The point I was making was Avram raised his hand to do it. He already made the commitment inside. He was going to kill his son. He was going to sacrifice his son. That's true. Of course, that's true. He says he named him for the first verse before he even knows what God's going to tell him. And he doesn't argue either. We'll get back later on why he argues elsewhere, but not here. He doesn't want not one word of argument over here. By Ashkem Avram Baboker. It's not like Sodom. Sodom, he argues. He doesn't argue. Well, we'll get to that later on. Okay, I have time for one more comment. Anybody? As the story goes, it's a very good story. I mean, literary, literarily, the way it's constructed, it's got it's an amazing story. It's a foundational you know, it story. It's his hand and so on. It's a it's a wonderful story. That is true. Not the only one, of course. No, not the only one. Yeah. The biblical narrator is a great storyteller. Very great story. One of them, but there are plenty of others. Okay, we'll stop at this point. Thank you for joining. Looking forward to next week. Um, thank you. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rabbi Silver, of course, as always, for leading us thank in this awesome, awesome class. And to everyone else joining us here on Zoom, on Facebook, and Andresha Live for being part of our learning community. We will continue this course next week, same time, same place. We look forward to seeing you again.